How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, thank you for the birthday wishes, everybody. And um, Richard, thank you for the chance to be the bigger man and not return <laughs> evil for evil and turn the other cheek. Like Jesus said, uh, if you'll stand, we're going to read from God's word. I win. Uh, we'll read from God's word. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1. We'll start reading at verse 67. Luke chapter 1, we'll start reading at verse 67. This is God's word. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from out on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for speaking to us, God, and we thank you uh, for what you have to say to us this morning, Lord. We pray you would help us to be more grateful that you sent Jesus, Father. Uh, be more grateful that you would visit us in Christ. And God, we, we pray that you'd help us to see him more beautiful and people who don't know Jesus, help them to see him as a beautiful Savior that he is. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, smart men throughout history have said this phrase a lot. God helps those who help themselves. A lot of people think Benjamin Franklin said that. He really did, and it came from the Greeks. Uh, and just a lot of people have repeated it time and time again. And the assumption is, I mean, that phrase has been said so much that a lot of people assume that God himself said it. And that it's somewhere in the Bible. It's one of those things that's like, I know it's in here somewhere. Just give me a minute looking to index for help, but you're not going to find it. It's not in scripture. It's just one of those things that sounds nice, so people just keep saying it. Um, and I think there are some things that God will do in response to something we do. Sometimes we do what we're supposed to, and then God will be gracious to us in, in response. But I think that phrase, that God helps those who help themselves, misunderstands the situation that people are really in, the situation, the helplessness that we have, because the truth is this, People are really smart and people are really resourceful and we can improve a lot of things and we can do lots of amazing things and we have. But when it comes to our biggest problems as human beings, we are completely helpless. It's not that we can't solve any problems. But when it comes to the biggest problems, we are absolutely helpless. One of our greatest problems is that we underestimate our problems. And when we underestimate our problems, we always settle for bad fixes. 
when you think your problem is a lot smaller than it is, you're likely to go for a much smaller solution. So it's a problem that we always underestimate our problems. And here's the thing. There have been times throughout human history where people have assumed we're smart enough, we can do some new stuff, and we can fix all our problems by ourselves. There's a lot of times when people have assumed that. And a lot of the most incredible things human beings have done is people trying to solve a particular problem. Let me name a few. The pyramids in Egypt. That is an incredible human achievement. The problem they're trying to solve is, well, these pharaohs are dying. One, they need to have their stuff be able to go with them into the afterlife because of their soul. And we need this monument to them so people will remember them. And it's an incredible human achievement. It was a problem they were trying to solve. Think about the first heart surgery that somebody did. It was amazing that you had somebody have something go wrong with their heart and a doctor cut them open and fixed it, sewed them back up, and their heart was working like normal. They healed up in a few months. Never been seen before. That's amazing. That's problem solving. Or the enlightenment. People are, uh, are saying, oh, man, maybe we underestimated what human beings are capable of. Maybe we haven't used our reason enough. And there were incredible things that happened as a result of that. But here's the thing, all of those are amazing things, but in spite of all our brilliance and all the stuff that we've been able to do, we still cannot rescue ourselves from our biggest problems. We can solve little ones. All we can do is try to treat the symptoms, right? But we can't solve our biggest problem. Those pharaohs we talked about and those pyramids, y'all don't know none of their names off top. They were forgotten. Didn't solve that problem. The person whose heart was repaired. They went on to live, but they died eventually. You solve a problem, you can't solve the biggest problem on our own. And the enlightenment, we may reason better than we once did, but if you talk to anybody, if you've ever been on social media, we're as unreasonable as we've ever been. We can treat symptoms, but we cannot solve our biggest problems all by ourselves. What we need for that is not just more human genius. We need something greater than that. We need something because all of us are helpless. If we just keep looking around to each other, we're going to remain helpless. We need someone to enter our world and rescue us. So like John so clearly said last week, if we look for hope in this world, we're just going to leave more depressed than we were before. Right? Sometimes people want to say, look on the bright side, and there's not actually a bright side. And that's such a helpful reminder for me, even as I sat and I listened to that sermon, because it's so easy for us when there's one thing that disappoints us in our lives to just go to something else. Like, man, this isn't working out, but I got this. And what John pointed out so clearly is that anytime we're trying to place all our hope on something that's not strong enough to hold it, it's going to end in disappointment. You know, that's a reminder for me, even as I wrestle with the way that my illness impacts my life and things that don't go the way that I want them to. And I'm reminded there are good things that can help. But at the end of the day, what I need for my biggest problems is not just a doctor. It's not just a support system. I need a savior. Uh, and we, none of us need just human solutions that can only treat symptoms. We need someone who can rescue us. We need a visit from God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Just keep looking around at each other. We're not going to be able to solve our biggest problems. We need God himself to visit us. So we're looking in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the reasons I picked this part of Luke is we have this little Advent series thinking about the, the coming of Jesus. It's because 
a lot of times we have in our mind the story of uh, the Christmas story, and the only thing we're thinking of, we're thinking about the manger, and we're thinking about the, the cute baby, and we're thinking about the wise men, and we're thinking about the shepherds. But we, we sleep on the significance of what was actually happening. And, and I think what, what we have here from Zechariah will help us to, to see this. So let me just tell you, give you some background on, on who we're talking about. In the Gospel of Luke, one of the first people we get to meet is a priest named Zechariah. He has a wife named Elizabeth, and they're both righteous in God's sight. They're good, God-fearing people, but they hadn't been able to have any kids yet. They'd given up hope because they were old, or as the text says it very nicely, they were well along in years. So Zechariah, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's carrying out his priestly duties. An angel appears to him. This angel says, and of course, Zechariah's terrified. You know, you know, we think angels are cute, but anytime an angel shows up, people are afraid. Um, and so this angel shows up and he says, y'all are going to have a kid and, and you're going to name him John. And Zechariah, being old, is like, ah, I think you came to the wrong dude, angel. Uh, I'm old. And the angel's like, okay, you're mute for the rest of for the nine months. So he gets struck silent because he didn't believe God's word. Uh, it's a good thing all of us don't get struck silent when we don't believe God's word because this would be a very quiet congregation in here. So what happens is uh, he's silent for these nine months uh, and his wife is pregnant. And so uh, it just so happens that Mary uh, is Elizabeth's cousin. Right. So Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and um, Mary, who's also gotten a visit from an angel saying you're going to have a baby. She's also surprised for a very different reason. She's not old and barren. She's young and she's a virgin. So this is also and, and Mary, unlike Zechariah, believes God's word. And, and Elizabeth, his wife, believes God's word. And so Elizabeth gives birth. And afterwards, there's a little dispute about what they should name him with the family. The family's rejoicing. And, and Zechariah still can't speak yet. And they're like, let's call him Zechariah after his father. And Zechariah knows that the angel told him his name is to be John. Uh, and some of y'all wish when you got beef with your family about what you're naming your kids that an angel would show up and tell you. But what happens is he, he writes on a tablet, his name is John, and immediately his speech is restored. His mouth is open. He can speak now. And so what we have in the text we're looking at is essentially the first thing Zechariah has said in nine months. He has not spoken, uh, and what does he use his words to do now that he can speak again? He uses his words to praise God, and he speaks dramatically. Um, and j just imagine for a moment, you know, that, you, that you're unemployed, you've been unemployed for a long time, and you haven't had a good meal in a long time, and you get a job, and now you get your first check, you haven't eaten a good meal in a long time, what are you probably going to do with that money. You're probably going to buy some food. You're not going to waste it. You have a, a great need. You got to spend it on the most important thing. Zechariah has been without words for nine months. And so when he begins to open his mouth, he's not going to waste his words. He's going to use them on what's most important. And he uses them to bring praise to God. And what he's going to talk about is this glorious visit from God that we so desperately needed. Look at verse 67, Luke 1, verse 67. It says, then his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. But blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Now, Zechariah is John the Baptist's father, in case you don't know that. And John the Baptist, it doesn't mean, you know, he was in a, at a Baptist church. I mean, he was baptizing people, so... 
can think John the baptizer if you get confused. Um, so uh, this is a pretty interesting way to respond to the birth of your first son. Um, he breaks out in a long monologue slash prophecy, which isn't what you probably expect. It is a joyous occasion. Um, and, and here's the question. We understand why he would be praising God uh, for his firstborn. That's natural. That's good. But why is the birth of his son making him say the Lord has visited his people? Why would he say that? Is he just confused? Does he think that his son is God in the flesh? Is he confused about that? I don't, I don't think so. Of course not. He's, he's grateful for his kid. But he understands that there's more happening in the birth of his son than just his firstborn. He understands God is at work, keeping some promises. And so uh, Zechariah did get a visit with that news from the angel, but that can't be the visitation from God he's talking about. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't seem like the visitation from God he's talking about. You know, is this something we just don't know? Is God knocked on earth's front door and we're just not aware of it? The narrator didn't tell us yet. How does the birth of John the Baptist mean that God has visited his people? Well, he understands that John the Baptist is there to prepare the way for Jesus, and God is visiting his people in the person of Jesus. This is why I'm saying that Christmas is not just a cute, nice story with some suspense, and you wonder, like, oh, I wonder if they're going to be able to stay anywhere, and like, oh, they did, and people came, that was dope. That, that's not the totality of this. God visited us in Jesus. And Zechariah's son John is there to prepare the way. And that is a big deal. That God isn't just sending another prophecy. That God isn't just sending another representative. That God is coming to visit us himself. God doesn't even have a body and he puts a body on to come visit us. And that's a big deal. You know, we used to friends coming to visit us. Some of us got family coming to visit us for the holidays, or we're going to visit other people. This is not just any visit. This is a visit from God. Let that sink in for a moment. People in the story, a few people in the story seem to get that. You know, like when the angel came to Mary and told her, they said they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus was God, but with us. That God is visiting us, or this, this one is crazy to me, that when Mary goes to see Elizabeth, who's pregnant with Jesus, uh, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and she sees her cousin, and she said, how has it happened that the mother of my Lord would come to see me? She doesn't say, hey, cousin, what's up? You look cute. I like your hair. She says, how is it that the mother of my Lord would come to see me? This is a visit from God. So we'll talk about some of the beauty of that fact as we... Um, talk about the actual birth of Jesus next week. Um, but for now, I don't want you to miss this, that the same God who put the stars in the sky and knows them by name, the same God who knows every hair on your head, the same God who holds the universe together by the word of his power, the same God who will judge the living and the dead, stopped by on earth for a visit. And that's the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. We're not talking about solving little problems like a single person's health. We're solving little problems like how we reason. We're talking about solving the problems of all problems. The problem of sin and death. The problem of darkness. Jesus came and visited us. Because we didn't just need a visit from family. We needed a visit from God himself. So I want you to look with me at verse 69. And, and Zechariah is going to tell us a little more about this visit. 
And as I read it, pay attention to all the stuff he's saying God has done. Verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. One of the major themes of what he's saying right here is that God has kept his promises. Right? When he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, he's saying God did what he said he would do. Horn of salvation, um, you know, animals like an ox, their horn, they thought of that as like the, the strength of the animal. And so when, when he says a horn of salvation, they would say this to mean, you know, like royal power or the power of a warrior. That God sent them a strong warrior that brings salvation. Uh, and that this warrior, as promises from the house of David, right? You know, David, the, the psalmist, you know, wrote so many of the psalms, King David, and, and God says that, right, the throne will stay in his house and there will be a king that comes from the line of David that will reign forever. And he's saying God sent that strong warrior, God sent that forever king just as he promised. Verse 71, he says, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us, that he came bringing salvation. When you think a strong warrior is about to show up, salvation is not the first thing that normally comes to mind. It really depends on if you're the ones that came to fight or if you're the ones that came to rescue. In our case, our strong warrior has come to rescue us. And he's saying from the hands of our enemies because um, there's two kinds of salvation that are overlapping in, in his passage. There's salvation, the spiritual salvation that he'll emphasize a little bit later. But he's also talking about this salvation that God has promised his people Israel that one day Jesus will make all things right. There will be no more enemies that are able to oppose them because they're the people of God. But he's going to emphasize this spiritual it's salvation that comes and it's available right now. I want you to pay attention for a second to verse 70. He says, uh, right, he raised up this horn of salvation just as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets in ancient times, which I found really powerful that God sent this strong warrior just as he spoke, or to put it another way, exactly like he said he would. That even thinking about a passage like John looked at last week, talking about sending a wonderful counselor and a prince of peace. God has done that, right? He said he would send them all throughout the Bible where God is talking about sending this king and he did it just as he said he would and that should bring us comfort that God keeps his word. Right? Then when God says something he means it. Our God is a just as he spoke kind of God. Not kind of like he said kind of God. That's not the kind of God we have. He's a promise keeping God, not a promise breaking God. That should bring us a lot of comfort that he always does precisely as he said he would, just as he spoke. When you find yourself doubting the promises of God, you should remember that he does everything just as we spoke, right? That's the kind of God that came to visit us in Jesus. Um, you may ask yourself, though, why is it that important for God to be a promise keeper? It's nice. I know some people who keep their promises sometimes. Why is that such a big deal? What well, a at the center of any good relationship is trust. If you just did a poll, like, what's the most important thing in a relationship? Most people would say trust, right? At the center of any relationship is trust. And at the center of trust is knowing somebody will do what they say. How can you trust somebody who doesn't do what they say? And, and what happens when somebody doesn't really do what they say all the time? 
Now you got a friend who doesn't really do what they say. It puts a wedge in your relationship. You ever have a friend who means well and they always say they're going to do stuff and they never do? And so at this point, you, you're not really mad at them, but when they say something like, yeah, and I'm going to bring you to blah, blah, you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Like you, you just stop believing them because their word doesn't mean as much to you anymore. Um, and uh, the opposite should be true as well, though. If you have a friend who always does what they say, then when they say things, it holds weight. You believe them. You know, they're not just throwing words around. You take what they say seriously. How much more so should it be for the God who's never, ever gone back on his word not one time? Right? He never got, even got caught in traffic and couldn't do what he said he was going to do. Not only does he not lie, but he has never been unable to do what he said he would do. And that should make us trust him. So a good question to ask yourself, because we don't always trust God. What keeps us from trusting his promise? Sometimes we just forget his promises. We forget what kind of God we have. We forget the ways that he's promised to be good to us. Sometimes we're just impatient. We're just like, God, I know you said you were going to do that, but it hasn't happened. And so we're thinking, you haven't done it yet. I'm wondering if you'll do it at all. But sometimes there are competing promises. Right, where the world is promising something to us that seems more attractive to us, seems more appealing to us. It seems like we'll get those promises a lot quicker, and they compete, and they make us trust those promises over God. Whatever those things are, we want to push back because God has shown himself to be trustworthy. Here's a more specific question. What promises of God do you find yourself tempted to doubt? Do you doubt that he'll never leave you, right? Do, do you doubt that he'll give you every spiritual blessing in Jesus? Do you doubt that he'll provide for you? Do you doubt that he'll keep you, right? Do you doubt that he's given you his people for your good? What promises of God are you tempted to doubt? I want to remind you that the greatest way to fight doubt is to remember that God has never failed to follow through, not even one time. He always does just as he spoke. That's the only way God ever is, just as he spoke. One of the things we got to remember when we begin to doubt God is that he plays the long game. He's always at work keeping his promises. We would much rather have a microwave Jesus who's real quick. Uh, instead, we often have a crockpot Jesus where it takes a little longer than you would like. Got to go do some other stuff and come back. That wasn't in my manuscript. Um, do you, I mean, he's always at work keeping his promises. I wonder, do you ever wonder what other people are doing? Like wonder what someone's doing at the moment. You usually do this like when you like somebody, like I wonder what they're doing right now. Well, we never have to wonder what God is doing. God is always at work keeping his promises, right? There's sometimes we can't tell how God is keeping his promises. God is always at work keeping his promises somehow. I bet Zechariah wondered what God was up to when he wouldn't provide him with a son, but God had a very specific timing in mind. And God was also going to use his son to prepare the way for Jesus. God was going to answer his prayer in a way that he couldn't even anticipate. God is always at work keeping his promises. And not only was he keeping his promise to be gracious to Zechariah, but he was also keeping his promise to send a savior into the world and to send somebody before him to prepare the way so that he answered Zechariah's prayer in a way that he couldn't even have imagined. God was at work even if he didn't understand it. So I just want to say this. If you don't 
really know what God is doing. Don't let your lack of omniscience make you doubt God. Uh, just because you don't know how God will keep his promises does not mean that God is not going to keep his promises. If, you're, if your ignorance of God's plan makes you doubt it, then you will only ever doubt God. Knowing what God is doing, that's the exception to the rule. The rule is we usually have no idea. And so if you expect always to know exactly how God is going to keep his promises, you will always be disappointed. Because you usually will not know. Right? Our trust in God has to be stronger than knowing exactly what he's doing at every moment. Let's look at verse 72. It says, he's dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Right? Zechariah knows the way that God has dealt with Israel, and he's saying God has is, is, is been merciful to our fathers, and he's remembered his covenant. He remembered what he said. Those words, you remember this covenant, it's an echo. So many times God will say this in the Bible. My favorite one is in Exodus where God's people are enslaved and they're crying out to God. And it says that God heard them and he remembered their covenant to them. I love that. That's, that's beautiful to me that they're crying out and that God in the heavens hears them and he remembers his covenant. When the Bible says he remembers his covenant, it doesn't just mean he has a good memory. It means he's acting on what he said he would. He remembers what he said, and he's acting on it. I love that God has this perfect covenant memory. He's never forgotten a promise. And just as a reminder, he definitely has not forgotten about you. It can feel like that sometimes. I know sometimes it feels like nobody sees you. Just as a reminder, God has not forgotten about you. And sometimes you wonder, you think God could not possibly have some kind of good purposes for what's happening right now. As a reminder, God has not forgotten about you. And sometimes... A particular season can feel like it only brings bad. I just want to remind you that God has not forgotten about you. He has a perfect, covenant, loving memory. He remembers. He always remembers to perfection. We may forget him, but he don't forget us. We need this visit from God. And, and one reminder of, of, of the way that God hasn't forgotten us is the way he came to visit us. I want you to look with me at the, the end of verse 73. He's going to tell us why God came to rescue us. Like, what was the end goal? Why did he do that? End of verse 73. It says, he's given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. The purpose of this salvation in this text is service. Like the church I grew up in used to say, was saved to serve. Was saved in order to serve. Look to your neighbor and say, neighbor, you were saved to serve. Just making sure you're paying attention. Uh, I'm going to keep doing that. I just need to get louder with it. Say, neighbor. Okay. <laughs> Salvation. The way that the, uh, edit that out the podcast. The way that the text talks about salvation is that salvation is a means to an end. There's something that God's trying to do with this salvation, and that end is that we would get to serve him. Uh, you weren't saved just to go to heaven. You weren't saved just so you could be happy. Those are good things. But the purpose it's talking about here is that we would serve him. And we talk about serving God a lot. What comes to mind when you think about serving God? What does that mean? Serving God doesn't mean what we usually think when we think serving people. Right, usually we serve people um, by doing something either, one, they don't want to do, or 
or something that they can't do, like stuff that we don't want to do. You know, you go out to a restaurant because you don't want to cook and you don't want to have to clean up and set the table, so you go and someone serves you and they do it for you. Or, you know, if you go to a nice restaurant and they got valet, someone will park for you because you don't feel like parking your car. And then if you didn't bring cash, you feel guilty when you pick it up. Um, there's all kinds of ways that people would do things for us that we don't want to do, or like cutting your lawn. There's someone knocking on my door every week like, hey, can we cut your grass? I don't know what that says about my lawn, but they want to do that just in case I don't want to cut my grass. So sometimes we serve people to do things they don't want to do. Two, we serve people to do things that they can't do, right? When I get on a plane, the pilot serves me by flying that plane. I can't fly a plane. When I go to a restaurant, it's also because I can't cook. I don't know how. So they do that for me. Right, and I could go on and on and on. There are, there are ways, when we serve people, we either do it because it's something they don't want to do or because they can't do. I just want you to know that is not how it works with serving God. That's not what serving God means. Neither of those ways. Serving God is doing things he can do and things that he wants to do, but that he's graciously called us to join him in. Right, he's not asking us to do things because he can't do it without us or because he just wants to use us because he's lazy and doesn't want to do it himself. He does it as a gift to us. It's a gift to us that we would get to work alongside God. And you notice he calls it a privilege. He says he has given us the privilege to serve him. Serving God is a privilege that was purchased with blood. Serving God is a privilege that was purchased with the blood, not a burden to be avoided like the plague. Some of us see service as the worst possible thing we could ever do. But I want you to know that the opportunity to serve God without fear is the very thing that Jesus laid his life down for. You ever miss out on an opportunity that someone sacrificed for and feel bad about that? Like if you forgot to vote and any older black person be like, you know what our ancestors had to do for us to vote. And you instantly feel terrible and you'll never miss a voting day ever again. The reason is... What was given up in order for you to be able to do that is important enough that you shouldn't take it lightly. And in the same way, Jesus gave his life to save us that we would be able to serve him without fear. And that should press in on how we think about our lives. While we wanted to waste our life fighting against him, he came and visited us so that we could work alongside him. And how are we to serve without fear, which is huge. Not fearing other people and what they think about our service and not fearing God himself because Jesus took our punishment for us. Serve him in holiness and righteousness. He wants to make us more like him so that as we serve, we're showing people what God is like. He says serving him in his presence. That means that this visit of God in the person of Jesus wasn't some one-time thing where people got to be around God but that those who know him get to serve him in his presence. For how long? It says all of our days. That we get to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence for all of our days. For sinners who are not holy enough to even have a thought about God, it's incredible that he would give us the grace to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence for all of our days. That's incredible, and it's what Jesus came to rescue us for. And one of the best examples of that kind of service is John the Baptist. So Zechariah is going to start to prophesy about his son, and he's talking to his son. He may have even been holding his newborn son or looking him in the eyes as he says this. And so, parents, I want you to imagine what it would be like to meet your new child and to look them into the eyes and say this. 
He says, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. He tells this child, John, you will be called prophet of the Most High. Like those prophets he was talking about before that foretold about Jesus, he said, you're going to go right before Jesus and, and point to him. That the most important thing that John will do is to prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, kind of like a, a press secretary for a president or an assistant or a role player on a team, right? John has a significant role, but he's not the main event, right? He understands he's not the superstar in this situation. He, he knows he's a side dish and Jesus is the entree. He's just there to compliment what Jesus is doing. And he's saying, uh, John the Baptist even says, I'm not even fit to tie his sandals. And that is the servant's mindset in a nutshell, because here's the crazy thing. Uh, the Gospel of John says that John the Baptist was the greatest man born of a woman. Right? The greatest person ever who wasn't born of a virgin conceived of the Holy Spirit is John the Baptist. So other than Jesus, greatest man ever, he drew big crowds. He shook things up. He was a great leader. And yet the most significant thing about him is that he prepares a way for somebody else. And says, I'm not even fit to tie his sandals. There must be something really, truly special about Jesus. I do not think that it's a mistake that the greatest man born of a woman is the one who says, I can't even tie his sandals. He's there to prepare the way for Jesus. And that is the servant's mindset in a nutshell. That, that's an illustration of what service should look like. Again, to the parents, I want to ask you this. If you have young kids, would you be happy with that description of your child? there to be a servant of Jesus. That, that, that's the most important thing they would do. Are we trying to raise these proud, domineering kids who the only thing they know is worldly success, or are we trying to raise servants of Jesus? Right? Is there a way to be successful in a way that would honor Jesus? Is there a way to be humble in a way that would honor Jesus? Do we want kids who are only impressed by their own greatness, or kids who understand that they're there to glorify the greatness of Jesus? Whatever we're aiming for will shape the way that we parent. If we, like Zechariah from early on, can have a vision of our child being used for the glory of Jesus, that'll shape the way that we parent them. So I'm not saying you need to hold your child and prophesy to them about preparing the way for Jesus. That is uh, borderline uh, false teaching. But I would encourage you to pray for them in this way, that the Lord would use them to serve the greatness of Jesus and to parent them in a way that would lead to that and pray that the Lord would work on their heart. So, you know, he's talking about preparing the way. I just want to show a couple passages on the screen just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about in Malachi 3.1. It says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight him, delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of arms. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, talking about John the Baptist. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has been talking about sending this person for a long time, and that person is John the Baptist. So can you imagine Zechariah, the realization coming to him 
that these prophecies are about his son, his newborn son, this infant. God has been telling about the way that he'll get to come and prepare the way for Jesus. In verse 77, he tells us what that role is really there for. It says, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. There is nothing greater that we can give somebody than the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's how salvation happens. It's through forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness. I I recently listened to a podcast, and I saw a TV episode, too. It talked about um, forgiveness like it was kind of dumb or like it was weak or it was like a childish religious ceremony. The forgiveness is, is, is not something to be valued. And part of the reason why is because they were uh, talking about the kind of forgiveness that doesn't account for the wrongs that are done or the kind of forgiveness that comes from an unrepentant heart that should kind of wave something off, which is very different than the kind of forgiveness we're talking about here. The way that God forgives sinners and gives salvation is because he's already dealt with the wrong that's been done. It's not that God is overlooking our wrongs. It's that God has already dealt with those wrongs in Jesus. This is part of why this visitation of Jesus is so important. If Jesus does not come to earth, if God does not visit us in Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins and there is no salvation that really matters in any eternal way. This visitation of God isn't just significant. It's the most significant thing that's ever happened. Often when we think salvation, you know, naturally we don't think forgiveness of sins. You know, we think if we do something wrong, we just need to do something else to fix it. This is kind of how the world works. If you don't pay your bills and your credit's bad, well, you get the picture and then you try to do better over a period of time to get your credit score up. If you paint your room an ugly color, you say, that's bad, let me fix this, and you color over something nice. If you make your wife mad... You just try to make up for it and just buy some flowers and hope it pushes it out of a memory. This is how we think about fixing things. So this is how people often think of salvation. Like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but here are the good things that I do. I think God knows my heart. It'll be good. I want you to know that when Scripture talks about salvation, it's not through you doing some stuff to make God forget about it. It's through forgiveness of sins. And what accomplished forgiveness of sins is not you painting over where you messed up. It's what Jesus did on your behalf. So that this knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of sins is the most important thing you can tell people. We don't want our friends and our family and our neighbors spinning their wheels thinking they'll make it to God through church attendance and Bible memory. The only way you can be saved is through forgiveness of sins. And the only way we can be forgiven is through the one who came to visit us when that's what we needed most. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to give us that salvation through forgiveness of sins. Of sins. This is part of why when people start to talk about Christmas, especially some Christians who will be like, oh, you know, uh, you know, people out here saying happy holidays, we need to say Merry Christmas. Part of why I think that is uh, a waste of our time uh, is because I really don't care if people say the words Merry Christmas. I want them to know Jesus. It really does not. Is that me loving my neighbor? Like, psh. Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. You must not be a Christian. No, I'm not. <laughs> Why are we surprised that people aren't Christians? What are we? So I, I don't want some kind of mindless, heartless lip service. I want you to know salvation through the forgiveness of sins. So I'm not going. I don't care if Starbucks has a Christmas tree on their cup. Their coffee isn't even good. <laughs> what I care about. See, y'all ain't even clapping for Jesus like that. Um, 
what I care about is that people would know salvation through forgiveness of sins. This is not the way for Christians to interact in culture, to just try to get people to mindlessly pretend like they're one of us. We want people to actually know Jesus. So look, if you are doing Facebook rants about Starbucks, Starbucks cups and Christmas trees, and you're not telling your neighbor about Jesus, I want you to rethink your priorities. An opportunity we have to help people know salvation through forgiveness of sins, especially in this season when Jesus is a topic that can come up. You know, usually we talk about Jesus has to be a real weird segue, like, yeah, LeBron, that dunk, speaking of Jesus, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> but what can happen during Christmas is uh, there's a very easy segue. This is a time of year when we're talking about Jesus, and especially when we're sitting around the table with our family and with our friends. I know it is awkward to talk to your family about Jesus. I know it's even harder sometimes than talking to a stranger. But the most important knowledge somebody can have is about salvation through forgiveness of sins. And John the Baptist dedicated his life to that, preparing the way for Jesus so that God's people could know about that salvation. I want to encourage you to press through and to help people understand that God came to visit us in Jesus and we can be saved through forgiveness of sins because Jesus paid our debt for us on the cross. We don't have to tell people bad news. I mean, there's some bad news where sinners would need a savior, but the savior's already come. We're on the other side of the visitation of God in Jesus, right? So we have good news to tell people. Well, the end of this prophecy, Zechariah is going to start to talk about Jesus himself. Verse 78, he says, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's talking about Jesus and calls him the dawn from on high. And again, he's talking about who God is. He's this mercifully compassionate God, not a God who looks down on us and only thinks these sinners. He does see us as sinners, but he's merciful and compassionate. So he sends this Savior, the dawn from on high. Dawn like sunrise. This is like calling Jesus the rising sun, saying that our world is dark, and it's been nighttime since Genesis 3, and now the sun has rose. The rising sun has appeared. God has visited us in this dark world full of sin and full of death. The sun has shown up. In this dark world where we're in the shadow of death, the sun has shown up. In this dark world where we can't see anything around us because it's so dark, the sun has risen. It's daytime. Right? Do we, do we feel the significance of the visit of Jesus? He's saying, light for, dawn from on high will visit us and shine on those who live in darkness. Who are those who live in darkness? Every single one of us can raise our hands. And the sun is risen. Right? The sun is up. And Jesus is shining light. He's showing us what's what. He's exposed our darkness. But he's also calling us to come to him. We can have new life. We can have salvation through forgiveness of sins. The dawn from on high will visit us. You know, the, the reason that this visit from God is so significant is because of what Jesus came bearing. It's not just that somebody important showed up. It's what he showed up with. I don't want to be too, too hard on him because um, George Bush seems like a nice guy. Seems like he's a nice guy. But Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, people are dying, right? People are drowning. People are hanging out their windows, all of this. And my assumption is that as the president, he wants to see what's going on so that they can figure out what to do. 
But what was so unfortunate is you didn't just have people who were recovering. You had people who currently needed to be rescued, who were currently hanging on for dear life. And so when, when the president flies over in the helicopter looking at everything and not swooping down to pick anybody up, well, nobody cares about that. Nobody cares that they've gotten a glimpse of the president if they're going to die soon after. Right? And so he took a lot of heat for that, and I assume he didn't, he didn't mean it that way. Well, let me tell you, a visit from an important person means nothing if they can't actually rescue you. A visit from an important person means nothing from you. You don't want a handshake or a wave if what you really need is a life jacket. So if Jesus would have come being an important person and had no salvation to offer, or if Jesus would have come and just been an important person who would just be another human being who would try to come up with something to treat symptoms, well, it could have been nice, but it wouldn't have been the hinge that the entire history of the world turns on. When Jesus came, he came ready to save. When Jesus came, he didn't come in a helicopter that had limited seats. Jesus came to take any and everybody who would trust him. Right? Jesus came offering forgiveness of sins. Jesus came offering salvation. Jesus came shining light. Jesus came as a hero, as a rescuer. So what we have right here is like the origin story at the beginning of your favorite superhero movies. Where we begin to see how everything started. That before Jesus is even born, God is working by sending John the Baptist, by giving Zechariah this prophecy. And next week as we'll continue to look at this, we'll get to see the visit begin as the Lord Jesus is born. I want to close by saying this. Um, he says as he shines his light, it's also to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace is not what we would know apart from Jesus. Most of the time when strong warriors show up, they come with more conflict. Jesus came with peace. And so when we talk about Christmas, we're not talking about just a beautiful story to tell. We're not just talking about nice, cheery songs. We're not just talking about eggnog. We're talking about that time in human history when God visited us in a unique way. We're talking about when the king who hung the stars up was born from a woman that he created. We're talking about when God himself visited us. And when he came, he didn't come to judge us. He came to rescue. And that offer of that rescue is available to all of us. So if God only came to help those who could help themselves, all of us would be left behind. Because all of us are helpless. All of us are in desperate need of his help, and we can't even get the ball rolling. But God specifically comes to help those who cannot help themselves, and that's all of us. The good news is he comes as a rescue. So I don't want you to get so hung up on this beautiful story of a miraculous birth that you miss out on the fact that it was also a visit from God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name. Father, so grateful that you sent your son Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your merciful compassion, God. Oh, you're so good to us, Father. It is amazing that we can sing, let earth receive her king. Father, we're so grateful that we're on the other side of earth receiving her king for the first time, Lord. And we look forward to the day when we get to receive him again. Father, until then, help us to trust you, that you're good, that you keep your promises, you do everything just as you spoke. And Father, we pray that if there's folks here who don't know you, God, that you give them grace to trust in Jesus, to see him for who he is. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.